Thank you for coming out. Welcome. My name is Dubs Weinblatt. My pronouns are they, them, theirs, and I'm so excited to be here. In 2015, I founded the Queer Improv Show, Thank You for Coming Out, or TIFCO as we call it, and it is now one of the longest-running queer improv shows in New York City. During the show, our storytellers share their coming-out stories, and then our improvisers bring them to life. Our podcast is a little different. We still have a storyteller share their stories, but instead of folks improvising, we talk about them. And I'm so excited about my guest with me here today. I've known him for so long, and I cannot wait to dig into this conversation. Zach Summerfield, he, him, is a New York-based comedian, writer, and improviser. Zach's most famous characters include Steve Bannon, Ariana Huffington, and Ruth Gator Bins. Oh, my goodness. Ruth Gator Binsberg, chomp, chomp. She's a gator, but also a Supreme Court justice. <laughs> I got to know more about that. Okay. <laughs> His sold out solo show, History of Phones and Why You Don't Have Them and Why You Don't Have, yeah, converted several people to lifelong flip phone users. And his most recent show, I'm Adopted Live, at caveat, made a lot of people cry. Zach, welcome. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, this is so exciting uh first off to get to talk to you uh because we haven't talked in quite a long time but also i'm a big fan of the show uh i mean i loved the live show so Mm. much it was so cool uh and i started listening to the podcast and i love it too i mean uh i don't know i don't know how many of your guests go on and on about how great you are but uh (laughs) i really love this thing as an idea you know it's just like a record Mm. I don't want to be too, too, too like grandiose about it, but it's so great to have a, a archive of people's coming out stories. I mean, that's amazing. I don't know if that's what, what your goal was, if you knew it would be, you know, stored in an archive, the National Archive somewhere in a thousand years from now, people learn how to come out again or something. But, right. you know, <laughs> I just love it. Oh my gosh. Thank you. That's so nice. I, it really wasn't like on my radar, but now that it's been happening, it, it like is it's it's documenting history and it's cool so thank you for saying that yeah absolutely I mean I, I, like uh you know as I was listening I was like you know people have come out in so many different ways and like the environments they have to come out in are, are so different so that's so interesting to hear too you know um I mean I feel like the time that I came out in uh you know, it was before smartphones and Mm -hmm. the whole world, the whole world of it was so different, at least how it felt for me. You know, I mean, the internet existed. I'm not, not 70, Um, (laughs) but, uh, but, you know, there was not this feeling of, uh, presence in the media of anyone queer you know mm-hmm. you had a few examples obviously there have been will and grace and there have been some other groundbreaking things and there were obviously you know queer films here and there but as i was growing up there was no like presence of it being everywhere maybe that's because of social media it opened up the world for people to see 
different types of people. Um, but yeah, it's interesting to listen to the stories on this. And so many of the people who have coming out stories came out way after I did. Mm. Uh, and so their world was just so different. I mean, they they could see uh, trans kids and, and queer people all the time on Twitter and TikTok and stuff. And I feel like when I was coming up, uh, coming up to come out, uh, <laughs> <laughs> there was like... Um, none of that mm-hmm. you know i'm sorry yeah. if i jumped right into the to the story uh if i'm getting ahead of myself here but yeah that's one thing i took away from listening to a bunch of episodes recently thank you this is, yeah i mean it is it i mean you're already hitting on so much of why i think it's important that this podcast and other podcasts like this exist it's for that representation for that um, <clears throat> like permission or consent to be your true self. And I feel like a lot of times we need to see it outside of us, have that roadmap to know that it exists. And so that's, mm-hmm. it's significant. And I think, you know, yeah, like you mentioned, there was Will and Grace, but there wasn't a ton of positive queer representation in television and in, in movies. Um, and I just remember when Ellen came out on her sitcom and how big of a deal it was it was huge and then she lost everything she lost everything yep and like what message does that send to little queer kids all over the country and and adults everybody like if if your true self you will lose it all yep absolutely you know which is interesting because that's a message that i think existed in our society even for all types of people, even beyond queer people, I mean, and still to this day, I mean, sadly, it's definitely changed and and reduced. But like, you know, Hollywood or day jobs, even sometimes day jobs, if someone represents themselves somewhere outside the norm, mm-hmm. it's easy for them to lose their position. You know, yeah. and it's just like the way our whole culture has been based. And I do think that you know, all the like activism that happens has definitely been eroding that toxic element of our society. So that's great. I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was just having actually multiple conversations about this exact topic that you brought up about kind of like when we as human beings defy the like set path that the like straight white cisgender christian men has has created as the norm the cisgender heteronormative world but but outs but i feel like it's all tied into that of like even if you're not a queer person if you don't if you aren't married by x time there's something wrong with you or like whatever it might be like if you don't follow the narrative it creates chaos (laughs) it's like and so yeah. So yeah, just to, to reiterate what you said, you don't even, it doesn't, you don't even have to be part of the queer community to feel the repercussions of those systems. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. I always wonder where that comes from. I mean, obviously there's probably no way to ever know, but obviously humans have lived in all sorts of different cultures, all different societies, all throughout history. I'm a big history buff, you know, uh, and you read about ancient and past societies, they all have a version of conservatism in them, even if the norms that they were, you know, living up to would be radically different than something we would see today. And I just wonder, is that just 
something that's built into being human is just the response to fear of danger of predators of starvation is to choose a way of behaving that seems to work and then lock into it and you can't deviate it from all because some unspoken fear that oh you know if everyone doesn't wear a cross on Sundays the crops will fail or something you know and and it becomes so unconscious and unspoken that as society keeps moving forward we just carry along these weird behavioral traditions with us and we have no memory of what it was based on you know I don't know yeah I mean I wish I knew the answer but I what I know is that so many people in power hold on to that because it's so much easier to like in the work that I do, and I promise we'll get to your actual coming out story, but this is so juicy. Sure. Yeah. Um, <laughs> no, this is great. This is, I love this. Um, the work that I used to do at the organization where I used to work, um, a lot of the pushback that I would get or, you know, whatever it might be was, but we've always done it this way. And this is our mm-hmm. tradition. And if we, you know, it's almost like disrespectful to our elders, or to our ancestors to to deviate. Yep. And it's like, I really can understand that. Like, truly, I do understand that. And if we want to keep building a community or a society that embodies and envelops every single person that's part of that, then those traditions, they have to expand. They have to. Mm-hmm. And it's not mm-hmm. about erasing the past. It's about building on it. And it's not about um, I think also too, the people in power are afraid of losing power. And so they don't want to. So they're doing everything they can to hold on to those structures so they don't lose power. And I think another piece of it is um, it is really, because of the way that society is now built, it is really hard to deviate from the norm. And so, you know, if it's, I'm just trying to think of like, whatever it might be, it's hard to like live in your truth. If your truth isn't that one narrative of person, because, because of the repercussions, both socially and religiously and what have you. So it's like, it's a whole mess. Yeah. It really is. Yeah. It really is. Oh man. Where to start? Where to start? You know what? I think about it all the time. I'm in, this like existential dread place of my life where it's like the world is going to, I just was talking, do you know who Jeff Hiller is? Yes. I just, yes, I I just him. interviewed him. Me too. And we were talking about this too. And it's like this, I have this existential dread because like on the one hand, the earth is going to explode, implode both <laughs> uh, very soon. Like, you know, not tomorrow, but soon <laughs> like yeah, yeah and yeah. so I, it's like there's a part of me that's like what nothing it, you know it's like that plus literally I'm just gesturing to everything like all of the things that are so terrible that's happening right now where I I have this where it's like I don't even want to begin I'm so tired and it, what does it matter I completely agree I mean I have been beyond uncreative for the past two years uh you know I mean at first when the pandemic happened uh, unfortunately, uh, obviously terrible for many people. For me, it was a huge relief mm. because, 
in the phase right before COVID hit, I was literally experiencing burnout. You know, mm-hmm. um, I work a day job, which is not that difficult. But at the time I was working for AT&T uh, doing software testing, which is the day job I've had for like 15 some years now. Um, and sorry, AT&T, when you listen to this podcast, you stink. Uh, bad <laughs> company. Oh, no. I mean, just <laughs> bad, like weird environment. They would make me come into an office, which I know in the world of problems is very low, but uh, I hated coming in because I, as a software uh, person, I was always granted this wonderful luxury of working from home Mm. in almost every job I had, but they made me come into this office, but it was extra crazy because I was the only person who worked for AT&T at that office. And they would make me go to this office at 9am and AT&T was on the West Coast, and they wouldn't show up until 11. But they made me be at this office at 9am. And they would make me go to the stand up meetings. If you're if you know what that is, it's the morning meeting where you say what we're working on today, Mm. um, with the other engineers in the office who did not work for AT&T. And they would make me (laughs) talk about what I was doing. And I'd, every day I'd be like, well, this doesn't affect any of you, but here I am at 9am in Midtown, um, you know, talking about AT&T. And then I'd wait around till 11 and start doing work with the office in LA. And it was a crazy situation. And then incredibly weird thing um, that, you know, I'm an adult. I'm a very old man. Uh, <laughs> I'm not 70. Not 70, well, under <laughs> 70. But I, I, I wasn't uh, you know, I wasn't destroyed by this, but the office formed a sort of click against me what? and started started going to lunches and stuff without me. <laughs> and everyone in the office was very young. There were a lot of early 20s people. This was their first engineering job. And it was really strange. I mean, I laughed about it, but I was like, I was like, what? what is this weird world that AT&T is forcing me into wearing like high school bullied, you know, by. (laughs) I'm so confused by everything. (laughs) It was a very confusing job. It was a very confusing job, but to get back to my point of burnout. So I was doing that job and then I was doing a lot of improv auditioning and, you know, teaching improv. I got really into teaching. Mm. I was teaching at the pit and I was, you know, teaching indie groups two or three nights a week so it was like you know it's that lifestyle that we all lived when we were doing comedy where you're like you know you leave the house at 8 a.m and you don't come back until two in the morning or whatever Mm -hmm. and you just do it all the next day but I was literally burnt out you know like I did not enjoy a single bit of the comedy that I was doing Mm. and then the pandemic came and I lost my job and I lost the teaching and it all just went away and I was on unemployment. And for a while I was like, this is fantastic. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but then it went on for too long. Yeah. And I think I know sort of what you're saying with the existential dread of all this stuff. It's like, not only are we now because of the media more aware of every horror that happens anywhere on the planet, mm-hmm. like every single day, we also have so much time to sit and think about it, you know, be, I mean, without live shows, which I know live shows are back now to an extent. uh, But without that whole distraction, it's like, yeah, you just sit there and you ruminate and you 
focus on it. I mean, like I, I wouldn't say I'm agoraphobic, but now every time I have to leave the house, I have a moment of like, mm-hmm. like what am I doing? Why would I, why do I need to go outside? You know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I really, so if you're I, experiencing something similar, do you get out much or are you mostly in the home? Um, I get out pretty good. Um, but I, okay. do, but every, but every time I do, I have that same moment and it also takes a lot more winding up to go and I can't last like, you know, I could never, ever, ever do eight to 2 AM again. Like how we did that for year after year, because it was, it was also like drinking. It was like, it wasn't, we were just like sitting there, like refreshing, like recharging. We were like (laughs) doing all the things and drinking and eating and being yes, dumb dumb. drinking, eating greasy food, yeah. you know, and going to so many locations. I remember I do a show at two or three different places in one night, you know, mm-hmm. like, or you'd go, you'd go do a show. Then you'd go see someone's show. And it was like, what, how did we do that? How did we do that? <laughs> it was, well, no wonder we were all burnt out. And yeah, it was, I cannot imagine. Do, I, will, I mean, not only can I not imagine doing that again, I will, I will never do that again. It sounds awful. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I just think back to how the mag, how the, you know, my art, no, thank you for coming out at the magnet 1030 on a Monday. Like, yes. thank, thank you so much for the opportunity magnet. I'm, I'm not, it's just, but, and 1030 on a Monday, never again. No. Yeah. It, it I know. Be. Monday, the worst day for energy, you mm-hmm. know, Yep. <laughs> Everyone just wants to be home. Yep. But that show was great. I have, I loved so many of those shows. Thank you. Me too. Yeah. Uh, um, so I can thank you for coming out. I invite you to share <laughs> a coming out or coming into self story. This is, it just, it just fits so neatly into our conversation that we're having already. Yeah. Great. Yeah, sure. Um, yeah. So like I, I kind of keep harping on, I, I feel like I'm a little bit older than a lot of people who are around the, comedy community and you know my coming out process I don't want to like uh, brag about it or anything. <laughs> do what you want but I mean it was a, it was a little slightly my I guess my experience with being queer was a little unique from a lot of stories I've heard in that I had no idea I was queer mm. until college like not like I was like repressing it like literally I just had no idea at all like it didn't even come into my being. Um, so for me coming out, I had only really been wrapping my head around being gay uh, for about two or three years before I decided to come out to my family. Um, my family is, you know, Christian. My dad is, was a Lutheran minister for most of his career. And they are like, it's they're not like that stereotypical Christian that like hates everybody, you know, mm-hmm. but they're also not like the rainbow church that would allow like a female minister, you mm. know, they uh, they're somewhere in the middle. And I mean, like I said before, without social media and the internet, like even my awareness of homosexuality was so low. I mean, one of the first times I even knew about it was unfortunately my dad fired the organist at the church because he came out mm. as gay, which oh, is wow. not cool, dad. Not but cool, dad. No, but it was what was required of him at that job, mm-hmm. you know. 
And I remember thinking about that and just being like, why? How does this impact his job in any way? You know, but his specific denomination of, you know, Christianity is against homosexuality, even if they aren't like rabid, you know, sign holding haters of it. Mm -hmm. So when I decided to come out, I had already moved to New York. Uh, I had graduated uh, musical theater school. Uh, one of the biggest wastes of times any human can do with their lives is to go to musical <laughs> theater school. <laughs> but I didn't know. I was, I think I was 21. I was living in my first apartment in New York City, which was, I was subletting the living room of a 48-year-old woman uh, on 45th and 9th, and it was a rent-controlled one-bedroom for $405 a month. Holy moly. I know. I know. Uh, the poor lady... I still love her to death. She wasn't doing very well, so she couldn't even afford the $405. So I moved into the living room, paid the whole rent, and I loved it. Great place to live. You know, I was working at a dance school as a manager while I was on scholarship to take dance classes so I could stay in shape to keep auditioning for Broadway. Um, and I had been with my boyfriend for about two years, which was most of my time being gay uh and i had proposed to him and he said yes and this is before gay marriage was legal but we were still gonna do what we could do and so you know once i had proposed to my boyfriend and i was like i'm standing on my own two feet i felt like it was time for me to come out to my family regardless of the potential consequences you know like i said i didn't grow up with them raging against gay people I probably never heard them say a single thing against gay people, mm -hmm. but I knew what my dad had done with that organist mm -hmm. and I knew the general culture. So I knew there was a risk that I could lose my family uh, over this. And I have um, two younger brothers and a younger sister that I'm very close to, you know, and it, it was worrying, but I still felt very strongly that I had, and I don't want to push this onto anyone else, but I felt very strongly that when you are able to take care of yourself, that you do have an obligation to be your authentic self because there's a chance that it can help other people. And mm. I, that sounds maybe a little, again, grandiose, but that's how <laughs> I felt when I was 21. Mm -hmm. um, so I said, I have to do this because it's, I think, the morally right thing to do. So rather than call them, or do it while I was visiting, I did an incredibly old-fashioned thing, and I wrote them a handwritten letter. Ooh. <laughs> what no. even is that? <laughs> I know, right? I got out my parchment and my quill pen, and, <laughs> <laughs> and I uh, sent them this letter. I guess it was about two pages. It wasn't that much that it wasn't that complicated. I just basically said, you know, I am gay. I'm engaged to a man. Uh, I, I love you both. I don't actually know what it says. I wonder if my mom still has it or if she burned it in a fit of rage. Mm. Um, you know, when I said the basic thing, I'm gay, as we said back then. Um, and the response I got really surprised me because my father, you know, they took about a week or so to call me and I wasn't going to call them. I wanted to give them space. Um, my father called and he just 
cried and said, I love you and I don't care. And everything was wonderful. And that was great. You know, and this is the man who had been a Christian minister in an anti semi anti gay world. So that really surprised me because I thought he would have a hard time with it. Unfortunately, my mother Mm. had a really hard time with it. And I did not expect that at all. And she also had a reaction, which I read about later, is somewhat common, but I had no idea about. Rather than being like enraged at me, she essentially went into mourning Mm, and mm -hmm. acted as if I was dead. Mm. Not like she called me and said, you're dead to me. You're not my son anymore or whatever. But she literally was like in a depression and Mm. like couldn't hardly talk to me you know and like I didn't really know what to do I didn't know that was a thing but I guess sometimes when people reveal something about themselves if it changes the image that we hold in our heads of that person it can be like death yeah so she struggled and I think she's fine to this day but we got to a point where we could talk about it a little bit and then basically just never talked about it again. Mm. Very, very lower middle-class wasp type behavior. you know. <laughs> <laughs> and once in a while now she'll say like, well, I really hope you have a partner someday. Mm. And that's like the most that we'll ever discuss about it. <laughs> yeah. So that was basically it, you know, it was not what I expected because I expected it to be much, much worse. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you for sharing. It's, um, uh, I mean, you know, it's never, it's never uh, easy to tell someone your truth, especially when you don't know how they're going to react. It's, it's real. That's, I feel like that's such a, you're so not alone in that of, of not knowing what, what's going to happen. Like, am I going to lose my family mm-hmm. over sharing this true part of myself is really terrifying. And then yeah. to almost have it, uh, you know, like the reverse of what you thought it would be is also probably really off was off putting. Um, there's a, I, I hear, I hear the specific kind of reaction of, like mourning or loss um, specifically also around trans kids and Mm. of um, like, I've lost my daughter, like my daughter is dead or my son or whatever, whatever gender it is. And, um, you know, I think when I first came into my trans identity and was talking to my family about it a lot, there was a lot of that, um, I don't want to say a lot of that, but there was some of that kind of mourning that was happening because, mm. you know, like you said, it's um, when, when you are with someone for so many years and you have, you have an image of them in your head and you have a set, like we were talking about earlier, like, you know, a set idea of what this life is, this person's life is supposed to be to have that knocked off, like knocked away is really Don, you know, like, um, off challenging and challenging. Yeah. yeah. Um, and I, th- in the beginning of when, when I would, 
we would have those conversations, I was like, I really understood, like, I tried to understand it. I was like, I'm going to have empathy with this. Mm -hmm. But I think the more that I sat with that idea of mourning the death of a child feels so, to me, dubs, feels so morbid. Because it's like, not only am I still alive, but I am so much healthier and happier and more myself than I have ever been in my entire life. And like, why are we going to bring death into this? Yeah. And also like, this is a you thing that you said that I was a woman and that I was going to do X, Y, and Z. That was never my plan. That's just what you told me. Yep. (laughs) And I don't, so like, I don't want to, I guess it's like, I can understand like sometimes maybe some people need to have that kind of like transitional moment, but I wonder if there's like a a better one than death. <laughs> I just well, unfortunately, think- I don't think they get to choose how they react. That's fair. Uh, you know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think that I mean, what it taught me was you know it's like like gender hope is a big thing in parents Mm -hmm. you know they have a a son and he's going to be a man and get a wife and have children or they have a daughter and she will get married and we will have grandch and she will have a home Mm -hmm. and I mean you know we were talking about history and stuff before and like that's for most cis straight people who had somewhat nuclear families that's the only model they ever saw Mm -hmm. you know all of their aunts and uncles you know all of their grandparents like like i mean my parents are third generation from immigrants so they knew their grandparents who literally came over on boats you know Mm -hmm. from you know germany and poland and like I don't know what it's like to live in those countries or especially before the world war. But, uh, you know, my guess is that traditional family was pretty much all there was. Right. <laughs> it's a pretty good guess. You know? Yeah. So it, it must be a very hard pattern for them to break if they don't know anything. And it's not like, especially back then that like sex education was a good thing in this country, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, think about the media, how much even less media exposure they had, you know, not even compared to today, but even to like 20, even to what I had growing up. I mean, at least I had Will and Grace. So I knew that there were literally things as lesbians and gay people who had jobs and lived in society and were white and made six figures and lived in apartments <laughs> on Central Park West. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right, right. Exactly. It, so it must be very challenging and yeah so no go ahead no no please i just i can't i can't imagine what i don't have children uh i assume you don't either i don't um (laughs) i can't imagine (laughs) what it feels like to have all of this concern to keep something alive and maybe the like behavior hope just gets like embedded in that need mm-hmm. to literally keep another living human alive for you know whatever 10 16 years so they can function on their own yeah mm. i don't know 
Yeah, I don't know. I don't know either. I am. Um, that well, that's another one of those things. Was I always thought that I had to have kids? Yeah, it just it did not even occur to me that there could be a different way of living. Yeah, and, I, and when I was growing up in the house next door, a couple moved in, and they were a li- like I actually have no idea how old they were, but in my mind they were like my parents' age. I think they were much younger, but they didn't mm-hmm. have kids. And I remember being so confused by that and like asking my parents, like, why don't they have kids? My dad is like, some people don't have kids. And I was like, but how, (laughs) why? Like, it just, I didn't know that that was a thing. And I think it just goes to show the like so deeply ingrained way that we are raised and like what is expected of us as the gender we're raised. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it just like, anyone who like you said before defies the norm in any way like not having kids throws some people's worlds into a tizzy you know like that's you know I thought I had to have kids too I mean honestly I didn't get over the thought that I should have kids until I was like in my 30s Mm. Mm. I was like finally like came to terms with like accepting that I was not going to have kids and that it was okay yeah yeah it um... I mean Sorry, I keep cutting. I would have felt bad for any kid raised by me in New York City because uh, (laughs) (laughs) I don't know that I've had the lifestyle that would have been conducive to a kid having a good time. At least I wouldn't have had to been able to have as good of a time as I did have. (laughs) That's right. You would have been able to stay out till two a.m. eating greasy food and making up laughs. Absolutely not. Um, I as I as I was like working through my gender stuff. I was like, so maybe I didn't want to have a kid because I didn't want to be read as a mom. And maybe I didn't want to have mm-hmm. a kid because I didn't want to carry. So then I was really like entertaining the idea of like undoing the narrative in my own head of like what it mm-hmm. means to have children. And so I started like consuming stories and um, social media accounts of trans people of all genders ha- having babies and becoming mm. parents. And it just reaffirmed for me, it doesn't matter what gender I am. I don't want kids, <laughs> which yeah. is like, which yeah. is actually like very liberating and also scary because it's like for this whole time, I was like, I got to be a parent. And it's like, I don't, but I don't want to be, but then there's still this like tugging of like that I'm doing something wrong or that I'm letting somebody down. But it's like the only person that would be let down is that child. Because I, my yeah. heart wouldn't be in it. And I don't, yep. I can be the greatest unky. I can be a friend to children. Oh my God. I love, I yeah. love my nieces and I love my nieces and my nephew. I mean, I don't like my nephew really, but you know, that's a different <laughs> story. My nieces are like some of the most amazing thing. My, my sister has these three girls and they're literally like fairies. Like mm. I've never met, I guess I, you know, it's not like I met a ton of kids, but I've never seen People who are always happy, they are never unhappy. <laughs> I mean, and obviously I'm not around them all day, every single day, but they just like laugh from the moment you see them to the moment that they leave. And I'm like, what's going, what happened here, Elise? Like you got, you, you mix some kind of, you know, correct gene potion and you're raising them exactly right to be the happiest people. I hope they stay that way as they grow up and get into the real world. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. That's special. They're very cool. I really cool. like them. They Facebook me 
you know, all the time. They have Facebook Messenger and they love to send me, again, I'm so old. They send me this thing called Gotcha Life. Do you even know what that is? No. I, I can't even describe it. It I'm going to try. Okay. It's like a YouTube community where people make videos of animated characters who like act out scenes, but they don't talk. And then there's reaction bubbles, but it makes no sense. There'll be like a boy walking in a room and he'll be smiling and a girl will walk in with a sword, which has nothing to do with the scene. And she'll go like a sad face and then there'll be like an explosion. And like, that's the video. And I'm like, what is this? That's bad improv, baby. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just like picturing like in the basement of Triple Crown, like, (laughs) you know, a boy like walking onto stage setting the scene and then some person just coming in with a sword and exploding it. <laughs> they love these things. They send me all of them all the time. And I'm like, I don't know what, I think they love it because every time I go, I don't know what this is. Mm. I don't know what you're saying. <laughs> they love that reaction. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's it's crazy. Wow. My, mm. um, my nibblings are not, old enough yet to do that kind of stuff but I'm, i'll be excited to see what they come up with when they're mm. the social media age if they're allowed to dabble in that um i want to i want to ask you a question about your coming out because i'm so curious um so you said you like had no sense that you were gay until you were much older yeah. Are, is there any like I, well this is actually a two-part question one is once you realize that about yourself what like in hindsight, were there moments that you're like, oh, that's like, like, I don't know, went to musical theater school, just, just to be stereotypical or, you know, like moments like that. And, or what was the like, kind of like ring of keys moment? Like, was there a moment for you? You were like, oh, I am gay. Like, how did you finally yeah. figure it out? Well, so, you know, the first gay person I ever met was in high school and I was, uh, it was junior year of high school. I was dating the German exchange student. Her name was Miriam Valinger. We're still in touch. I love her. Mm. Um, and she was stunningly beautiful. She looked exactly like Morticia Adams. Mm. She had this long black hair. She made her own clothes. You know, she was so advanced because she was from, you know, Hamburg. And she was in a tiny town in Michigan. I don't know why she did it to this day. <laughs> Very strange choice to spend a year in a little town. And, you know, she, of course, collected every unique person in the entire world. And uh, she had an openly gay friend from the high school in the town next door named, uh, well, I'll, I'll leave their name out of it. Um, Cause we're not really in touch, no bad blood, but, mm-hmm. um, and I remember meeting them and they were so flamboyant mm-hmm. and dressed so differently. I mean, uh, thrift store clothes and, you know, seventies, you know, vinyl, you know, type shirts and stuff. And it just like, shocked me I was like well this is how a person can be Mm -hmm. and I was like well if that's what being gay is then I know I'm not gay Mm. you know because I have no interest in in any of this Mm -hmm. um you know and so it just like never came up and you know I it's so weird 
I was basically raised essentially without sex education. Like, I don't think I ever had a class in sex education. I mean, I remember reading a dictionary about sex, you know, and like, again, this is before the internet. So it's not like you could just see porn, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just had no awareness of queerness as being like real until I met. And then I was like, well, he's great, but you know, that's clearly not me because I don't behave the same way you know, and I'm ignorant of all this. So I assume that everyone has to behave the same way if they're of a certain sexuality. And, you know, I just didn't really engage in sex. I mean, I messed around with a couple of girls I was dating, but it never like went all the way, you Mm -hmm. know? And I kept just thinking, well, maybe I'm just, you know, it just didn't happen. Like, I didn't know what the rules were. I mean, I assumed it would happen someday so my first year in college uh i went to the college near where my family lived i actually lived with my family and the first semester there i got involved in the theater group and um (laughs) back in the day there used to be places where people could play live music and and uh you know there was like this big art scene in the town i lived in because we were only two hours from chicago Hmm. So all of these bands would come from Chicago, which was like a big deal. And they would play in these bars. And, you know, again, this is the past. So there was no like ID check. So you could get in underage. I mean, I was going to bars since I was like 16. Um, and we, my little theater group decided to follow this band called Slackjaw. Hmm. And I, I remember them being good. I don't know what they would sound like if I listened to them today, mm-hmm. but it was Halloween So it's like, what, two months into my first semester, I'm with all my theater friends. We're following Slackjaw. We're at their show. We're getting drunk. And there's this guy named, uh, well, I guess I'll leave his name out of it too. There's a guy uh, from, you know, sort of the extended group. And everyone started being like, we think he's gay. We think he's gay. (gasps) He might be gay. Mm. Like it was a big deal. I mean, this is a freaking theater group, but Mm. you know, it's the past. So (laughs) I don't know why. But I just said, I'll find out if he's gay. And we, we know why, Zach. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's probably pretty obvious looking back at it. <laughs> but I walk over to him and I put my hand on his leg and I was like, what are you doing? Are you enjoying the show? <laughs> and then we ended up outside in the bushes making out. Mm. And I was like, whoa I did not expect that uh I thought I would just find out if he was gay and then that would be it well I mean you did and then I I I proceeded to fully freak out Mm. for months you know uh and I went through the I know that this I don't know I I don't know how people talk about this but being bisexual um has often been the butt of jokes uh, mm-hmm. in the past, you know, and we've worked hard to accept that as a real identity and not, you know, make fun of it. At the time, though, it was less uh, woke, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so I went through, you know, what was stereotypically called the bi phase, mm-hmm. where you're actually queer or gay but you don't feel comfortable with it. So you put your toe in and you say you're bi. And so I went through that for a while and it was a big struggle. 
And it probably wasn't until I came to New York City that I started to just chill out and be like, yeah, I'm gay, you know? So that's sort of how it happened. I guess it happened by me just choosing to be drunk and flirt with somebody as a joke in a bar. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So did you, did you report back your, cause you said, I'll do it. Did mm-hmm. you actually report back and say that, like what happened or? Well, yeah. I mean, again, not the wokest time. I did report back to my group of mostly girls who then they proceeded to try for several months to convince me that I absolutely was not gay mm. and would get drunk and, you know, make moves on me a lot because they seemed to think it was some kind of challenge to like, make mm. sure that I wasn't gay. Yeah. And I'm not trying to call anyone out or be cruel to them. You know, we were dumb college kids in a very different time. And, I do think one of them legitimately had a crush on me, so was very upset at the idea of me being uh, gay. <laughs> mm-hmm. Although the other one, one of the girls uh, became a lesbian and is married to a woman and lives very happily now. <laughs> so maybe I wonder what her journey during that time when she was making out with me drunk in people's basements for two or three months was. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that's pretty common for people to, I mean, just so much of what you said resonates with me. I also like came out as bi because I wasn't ready to say, so it's like, yes, there's problematic aspects to it for sure. And it's like a very real thing for like a a real moment back in the day before the hard fought battles (laughs) for bi recognition. Um, It was real. And, And I also, I remember when I came out, it was like, I had been holding it in for so, I was like the opposite of you. Like I knew from day one, mm. I was queer and like, I didn't know in all the ways how, but I knew that I was. Um, mm-hmm. And I held that so close and so tight to my chest for the first 20 years of my life that like, once I came out, I almost like went back in because I was like, mm-hmm. I'm out. And then I was like, but I don't want to actually have to like do it. Like on the one hand, like I wanted to, like, I wanted to make out with girls and, you know, but then it was, it just felt so hard and scary and big to like be a queer person in the world. That's not built for queer people. Exactly. And like, I remember feeling in this struggle I was going through for those like four or five months of trying to figure this out that it's so stupid, but I literally thought do I have to start behaving like the friend I met in high school? Totally. Like, is there some sort of subconscious rule that's going to take over my body and change all my behavior? And of course, no, there isn't, you know, like you can behave however you want, but it was a real struggle, a real fear. And I also still had, I mean, I had come out as an atheist way before coming out as being queer. Mm. Uh, And that was, way harder on my family uh than than the queerness uh but um even though i was like a militant atheist i had some sort of also residual moral panic about being gay Mm -hmm. that i had to work through and be like why am i so upset about this is it because of christianity you know Mm -hmm. and i had to work all that crap out yeah it's uh for me, it was, it also might be 
I want to speak for you, but I'll speak for me, a lot of internalized homophobia and transphobia. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we are fed the narratives that everyone else was fed and it's a lot to undo. And, you know, similar to the, you know, the story you shared about your dad firing the organ player, organist, you know, not that I don't remember, I don't recall. Well, that's not true. What I'll say is, I also like paid attention to when my parents or family friends or cousins would say like homophobic or transphobic things. And it's like, well, if that's how you feel, where do I fit into the equation? Yep. And that's really hard. And it's like, it is, it, it it feels like a failing, especially when, when parents or whoever, like guardians and society are telling you, you are this one thing over and over and over. And you're not that one thing. It's like, what else is there to feel but failure? Yep. <laughs> and yep. It, that's a lot and that's hard. And especially like you were saying, you know, pre-internet, no sex education, you have no, se- you meaning like this whole generation of people have no sense. And like, it's like, do I have to now be this one gay person that I saw? Like, am I a Jack or a Will? And like, those are the yeah. only two options. And it's hard. And that's why I feel like, I mean, the don't say gay bills and all the anti-trans bills that are happening right now are so scary and awful and terrible. And it's just, it's bringing us back to like those times of like not having access to what is natural and normal ways of being human. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my entire story, if I were to encapsulate more, would be about media access, essentially teaching you how you can be, you know, like we had no idea how to live. And I will say this, obviously it's very good to be concerned about these bills and stuff, but I have a suspicion that nobody can beat the internet and that, you know, it's not great. And I want these bills all destroyed and struck down, but I do have hope that young kids today, they're not going to like, you know, be in the situation I was in, you know, where there was just nothing, you know, Mm -hmm. that gives me a little bit of hope is that they say, don't say gay, but it like can't be defeated. I mean, gay is everywhere now, you know, like, yeah, I think it's like, I love that sense of hope so much. And I wish I want to, I want to hold on to that. And I also know that like, you know, yes, access to the internet, you know, that not everyone has, but a lot of people do and absolutely um, access to media. But when that's happening, simultaneously, like, like alongside witnessing like the government of the United, like, you know, as a kid, you think the government is the end all be all. It's like, it's the president of the United States. It's the the Congress Mm -hmm. and it's the governor, you know, like to witness a governor or a, you know, not president really anymore, but be on the side of don't say gay. Yeah. That, that is, I want to, I don't want to argue this, but I'm going to say like, can be more powerful than like finding community online. And that, I hope I'm wrong. But it's, oh yeah, it's, I mean, I hope you're wrong too. But I also I say that's completely valid because yeah. it is because uh, you know you know me. I'm very political. Um, I've tried to tamp it down online. <laughs> I have a secret account, but um, <laughs> you know, uh, uh, you are 100 percent right because 
I think the majority of people, even in their adulthood, still give this absurd undue authority to anyone in any kind of governmental position. Mm -hmm. And it's like, they're just a bunch of uh, jagoffs, you know, who are probably less educated about how to live than anybody who spent time in improv in New York City. (laughs) You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they're horrible people, all of them. And, uh, you know, gosh, you know, I don't know. It, it's 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 sad and it's gross but i really hope you know and also too there is a historical precedent every time there's been steps forward there's always been a couple steps back yeah. that gives me hope too you right. know because even though i don't like him whatever obama said was what is it the 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 course of history is forward i, I that's the worst quote misquote <laughs> i've ever seen <laughs> Barack Obama. Barack Obama. (laughs) (laughs) The arc arc bends towards justice. Yes. Thank Um, you. I don't even know if, I don't know if that's Obama, but it's somebody. Somebody. Um, And I do, you're right. And, and that's, I, you're right. And I need to remember that, that there will always be some Paula Abdulling with two steps forward one step back and that's just sucks. And it's, yeah. you know, and it's, it's, I, I'm really happy that you said that because I have not, I haven't thought about that in a minute. And when I think about just like my own, again, my own personal like journey of finding myself, I've had to do some recalibrating. Like I will, I like was like when I was first figuring things out, I like swung all the way to like, you know, abolishing gender completely. And like, and then had to like recalibrate back to the middle of like gender can be powerful when we get to empower ourselves with it and when it's Mm -hmm. not imposed on Mm -hmm. us. So Mm -hmm. like even my own personal arc towards justice had to swing far and come back. Mm -hmm. And I think because we, we as a queer community have made such great strides that you're right it's bound to to come back but i just i want us to like it just feels like we're living in the like crux of it and that's so hard and i hate it <laughs> well, when you're living, I mean? yeah when you're living <laughs> through it it's when it always is the worst that's absolutely true i'm sure every person every moment of history of any type of struggle has felt that you know when it's happening to them and this is this is the time where it's personal to you and and to trans people because I don't know how to describe it again. I'm trying very carefully to not say anything wrong, but trans rights right now to me seem to be the tip of the spear for movement. You know, Uh, I mean, even how trans visibility and rights have come even in my lifetime in just the past 10 years, I think just 10 years ago, it is like a completely different world. Absolutely. You know, I mean, once I got to New York City and I was out and I was heavily involved in gay nightlife, you know, I was a club promoter. I mean, half my friends were drag performers, you know, even then. Queer people would still be saying horrible things about trans people. Mm -hmm. And it was just the standard. It's how I was raised as a gay, you know, in my little gay raising. It was like this is okay to say about these types of people, you know, just 10 years ago. And you would never say anything like that now, at least not in New York city. 
And yeah, I'm sure those people are trying to bring it back, but I don't think they can. I really don't think they can. Yeah. It's like, um, I don't want to say the oppression Olympics, but maybe a little bit, or maybe that's not even the right thing. But it's like, you know, gay rights have, you know, also had the arc bending and, you know, two steps back and all these things. And it's almost like I've seen, this is not all gay people, but a lot of gay men, gay cis men is what I'm trying to say. Mm -hmm. White, white, mostly. Um, Yeah. It's like, okay, we got our rights. Yep. So like, I don't, I'm done now. And we're going to leave the rest of the queer community behind. Or like when I think about TERFs, like trans exclusionary radical feminists Mm -hmm. fought so hard for women's liberation and women's rights and equality that they, they, this goes back to them feeling like they're going to lose, lose what they fought for. Exactly. It's like, it's not about you losing. It's about more people gaining. You know what I love about you is you having the ability to try to have empathy for every side. That's really cool quality that a lot of people don't have. It's exhausting. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> I'm sure it is exhausting, but you know, I think that's the right way to do stuff because if you just demonize everyone in every part of the argument and they can be demons, you don't have any value of moving forward. You can't convince anyone if you just call them monsters, you know, at least that's my belief and all sorts of political things but uh oh god i want to go back one second uh before i lost it Mm. what was i gonna say Mm. talking about empathy turfs um for turfs you said something uh like gay men saying like we have our rights yeah exactly i was gonna get I was going to say the exact same thing. One of the reasons that gay rights moved as quick as it did, which I guess you could argue if you included all time or back to the 1970s might not be that quick. Mm -hmm. But one of the reasons that it was able to gain acceptance so much was because rich cis white men were part of the leadership of it. And so were the easiest to accept. Mm -hmm. And so clearly trans people are, outside the norm of the cis white world and Mm -hmm. that's a bigger struggle for them you know because one of the campaigns i remember gay rights was i don't remember what the exact slogan was i'm really bad on quoting quoting slogans today you're doing great um (laughs) (laughs) it was something like i don't even think this was that popular for one but it it was something like i'm just like you or something like that like tell your tell your family that i'm just like you because wow. i am you know and it's like sure sure there's definitely value in that but the structures of our society are held by the cis white male people in general and obviously that has changed is still changing but that made them a lot easier to accept that there was just one deviation from that norm that there could still be cis white homosexuals who chose to be monogamous and raise children so the Mm -hmm. only deviation was that they were doing gay stuff right so it was just one step for them to accept Mm -hmm. yeah and you know i remember um learning about this later i don't i wasn't privy to it at the time but in order to get gay marriage passed like 
they all the legislators like threw trans people under the bus and they were like we're not getting like because at first those bills were written with trans people included yep. and then they got so much pushback they're like well we're gonna like fight for cis people cis people's rights and like yep. essentially fuck you trans people um and i remember hrc got a lot of shit for that and i remember thank you for coming out i didn't know any of this thank mm. you for coming out did a fundraiser for them and i remember i got a lot of shit from people saying why are you supporting mm. hrc and that's when i learned more about what was going on and i mean i still did the fundraiser for them because they have publicly apologized and said that was wrong like wrong to support mm-hmm. and like if we i also you brought up the empathy i'm also you know very much in the the camp or whatever of not fully really believing in cancel culture like it, it it's nuanced and it's dependent upon yep. but if people are going to do things and take accountability and they're going to say they're sorry and they're going to do the actual work to repair and reconcile and be better why are we canceling them because then it will exactly. motivate nobody to take accountability and it will motivate nobody to try to do anything because they're so afraid of being canceled yeah, I mean, I could talk to you about this forever, honestly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. It's something I think about a lot. I think a lot of people think about it. Yeah, um, and, and, you know, but going back to, to like HRC, we're only going to fight for the cis people rights. I don't know how familiar you are with like Larry Kramer. Did you ever read any of the stuff that he wrote? You know, he was a big part of that struggle. And it's like, it seems like in all movements, there is a debate about do we try to take one step at a time Mm -hmm. and do respectability politics right because maybe that can actually move the needle or do we do what is morally right and fight for everyone and throw it in everyone's faces and say they're wrong and maybe that moves the needle and i have no idea what the answer is i assume i think that probably both having both things is what makes any kind of action happen Mm -hmm. Because if you don't have people yelling outside the room and then you don't have someone inside the room to say there's people outside yelling, then the people in power never hear it at all. Right. But that is definitely a struggle. I mean, and is wild. And I know I'm not an expert on civil rights, but I've read many stories. The same thing happened in civil rights. I mean, I again, don't quote me on any of this, but I know that there was... A, <laughs> A gay man who worked very hard with Martin Luther King. And I think that he was, you know, forced out of their movement because they're like, we can't fight for this too. Well, we're trying to stop, you know, people lynching people, you know, we can't yeah. take on this extra issue. So I don't, that's luckily right now, I don't have to make any of those decisions. Thank goodness. Yeah. <laughs> I know. It's like, you know, I think what you just said is something that I, I am actively thinking about on a daily basis of what is my method of movement? Is it the, Mm. like, I'm in the room at the table with you, giving you all the empathy that I have and, you know, listening to you shit all over my identity, basically Mm -hmm. in the name of moving the needle. And then there are some days where I am outside of that room, pounding and stomping and lighting (laughs) things on fire and I'm so angry. And I think you're right. It's both. It doesn't have to. I was talking to a friend, um, Adam, about this because I really was like, it's 
you know, my, even though I am a literal non-binary gender queer person, my brain still thinks <laughs> a lot of times in binary ways. Mm-hmm. And I was like, it's one or the other. And he's like, no, you can, you can move back and forth as much as you need, as much as you want, whatever the moment calls for. And he also said like, we need, we need all everybody. And so the, mm-hmm. the metaphor that I think about is like, we're all in a river and there are some people who are speed swimming and some people who are dipping their toe in and there are some people on the boats and some people fishing, but everyone's there and they're, they mm-hmm. are participating in the recreation of the river, but they're doing it in a way that makes sense for them. And it's, mm-hmm. so that's like the way that I try to think about it, but it, we need all of it. But um, I really could talk about this with you all night as well. I joke that we would talk for four hours, but that'd be the longest podcast <laughs> episode that's ever existed. But um, I wanted to just, you know, we didn't even get to talk about your flip phone. We didn't oh, well, talk about. I got sad news for you. No viewers at home. I've switched to the smartphone. Well, I'm doing I know. this whole podcast. <laughs> no, no. I can't believe Zach. When I, so I've known you, you know, probably close eight to 10 years, years. yeah like almost 10 years. years yeah yeah and you know we were on a team together called cheap date that was so fun loved you it always had a flip phone i and did I, like, knew you as the flip phone guy honestly that was one of those like narrative <laughs> things i was like who who doesn't have a smart i was like mad at you not not really you know what i mean but like who does this guy think he is with a flip phone <laughs> it was the best i wrote a whole show about it so yeah yeah. I loved it. I loved uh, it. I love that about you. Um, <laughs> but one of the, one of the words that like kept coming up for me when you were talking about like the one like identity marker off of like the norm, quote unquote. And it's like this idea of being palatable. It's like, mm-hmm. um, and so, which is why one of the reasons why I think, and I'm, I'm witnessing this in real time too. And maybe you've noticed of like the trans liberation fight, which is like, now cis uh no not cisgender that makes literally no sense binary trans <laughs> binary trans people so like trans men yes mostly and, tra- and trans women you know besides all of the terrible violence against black trans women they are quote un- i don't even know if i want to say this it's, okay. it's easier to understand because they are still a binary gender yes so it's still palatable in a certain way and i'm of course you know, it's so hard with these podcasts because it's like the nuance is lost and I can't say all the caveats for all the things all the time, but like, I hope right. everyone knows me well enough to know what I'm trying to say here. But like, yeah. but when it comes to like gender queer people and non-binary people and agender people and all the other genders that aren't the two binary genders, that's, we're becoming the not palatable. Yeah. Whereas the yep. binary trans people are becoming the more palatable. So it's like, yep. we're seeing it again. Where it's like people just don't under even don't even understand and can't wrap their mind around something that's not a binary. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. Yep. It 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 well, I don't know if it makes sense, but it has a historical precedent, that's for sure. Yeah. You know. And in some way it's a it's like a little comforting, I guess, but like not not really, but like a little bit, where it's like, you know, history does repeat itself and we're literally living in this moment where all of these things are exploding and imploding. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay, I don't want to, but I have to move us into our last segment, which is the, <laughs> the lightning round of questions. Okay, great. And I was told the first couple of seasons my questions were too binary, 
So they are now open-ended. I heard you say that before. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. You're a listener. So, you know, so so maybe (laughs) you've been thinking of your answers. So if you could name your own crayon, what would you name it? Um, uh, I have, I wasn't thinking about my answers. (laughs) Okay, good. (laughs) Even more fun. Um, I guess I would name it super blue. I don't know. (laughs) Super blue. I love it. Um, what's your favorite time of day? Morning. I did think of this answer. Yeah. I I wake up at like 5am every day. It's my favorite thing to have like four or five hours with nothing to do. I love it. That's amazing. What is your... Well, it's mostly from being old. My brain just wakes me up at 5 a.m. Oh. <laughs> I haven't used an alarm clock in years. Oh, my gosh. Um, you're also, like, not old. So it's, like, so funny. The, the running theme this whole episode is that you're old, but you're not. <laughs> well, it's all, you know, it's all relative. It's all relative. Um, favorite current queer media representation? Oh, uh... I guess, can this just be like a, a person? Yeah. Oh, okay. There's this, uh, I don't know, this guy, I don't even know his name. He was on Hacks. He mm. played the the water marshal or something. It was mm. very funny. I don't mm. know. I really liked him. I was like, that's cool. Because he's like gay, Latino, but he's very manly. And I was like, you know, that's cool to be represented, you know, that way. I love it. That's great. <laughs> Um, what is a song that makes your heart sore? Uh, I love, uh, Rufus Wainwright, Go or Go Ahead. It's actually an incredibly depressing song that he wrote while he was on meth, apparently. But it's a beautiful song and, uh, it always makes me happy when I hear it. (laughs) Well, that's great. Uh, You know, whatever floats your boat, as they say. (laughs) (laughs) um favorite beverage oh uh, this is so silly but water i'm diabetic now i just Mm. became diabetic so i have like switched to basically drinking water or tea all the time Mm. and you know what's weird i've gotten tired of tea Mm. i've gotten tired of all the flavors i've drank so much of it i'm drinking tea right now and i'm just like ugh drink water (laughs) can can is seltzer a thing that you can have i can have seltzer yeah yeah Mm -hmm. as long as it doesn't have any sugar Mm. also i'm doing a real bad job with my diabetes lately so i gotta get back on track please get back on track so you're because you're my friend and i want you to be healthy and safe thank you thank you um okay favorite quote oh Oh, I really should have thought of this because I do have one. I think it's on my Facebook and it's actually a horrible quote. It's a Latin quote. I don't remember the Latin at the moment, but it's, um, it's something like, it's wonderful to sit on the shore and watch people struggle in the sea. (laughs) (laughs) That's so you, but like, that's so funny. (laughs) I mean, yeah, I guess that's why it's my favorite quote. (laughs) It's sort of me. (laughs) <laughs> oh that's so good um okay bagels or donuts oh bagels 100 percent. Okay. donuts aren't even like a snack what are they they're garbage plus i have diabetes i shouldn't be eating either of them that's fair <laughs> uh 
Zach, thank you so much for being here and for just getting into it with me. This was such a lovely, lovely conversation. and so nice to see you. It's great to see you. And thanks for having me. It is really the highlight of my month. I'll tell you that. Mm, Okay. Mine too. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. We got to hang out sometime. Deal. Deal. Zach, thank you for coming out. Thank you for coming out. You're welcome. Thank you for coming out.